If the fetus isn't alive, why do you need to do an abortion? Once you have a baby growing inside of you, you've already reproduced. So the choice that you had to whether or not you want to make a baby is no longer there. You've made one. Viability changes with technology. So that's one reason to think that it's not a good measure of whether you're a person. And so the words baby, fetus, and embryo simply tell us how old an entity is, not what an entity is. They're donating money to an organization that they are trying to argue needs federal funding. Planned Parenthood does not need your tax dollars. Human rights aren't grounded in age, they're grounded in being human. It is a baby. It looks like a baby. It moves like a baby. It has its own DNA. It feels pain. It recoils. That is a baby. Yes, there is a fact at a point when a child can survive outside of the womb. But why does that matter? Who cares? There's no denying the difficulty in these circumstances. The question is, what ought we do when circumstances are hard? Hello and welcome. My name is Josh Humphrey, and this is the Fight for Life podcast, equipping you with the truth about abortion and the resources to defend life. Now, since this is the first episode of a new podcast, let's do some introductions, because you're probably wondering, who the heck are you? Um, like I said, my name's Josh, and I am a nurse by profession, and I just started back to school to become a nurse practitioner. I also have a bachelor's degree in microbiology from before I became a nurse. Now, I'm not saying these things to brag or talk about how much time I have spent in educational institutions or how much student debt I may or may not have, but I'm just saying these things so you know that I do have a strong foundation in the life sciences and human growth and development. I I do understand these issues. I'm not just regurgitating things I read online. So I first arrived at my pro-life stance from my faith. Um, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that Jesus came and died um, and rose again to save humanity, um, to offer salvation. But I don't think you have to share that faith necessarily, um, to believe that abortion is wrong. Now, I would love for you to share my faith and, uh, there may be some episodes where I talk about it, but I'm not going to solely focus on that because I think we can build a pretty strong case that human life is worth defending without, using any one or no religion as um, as a foundation for that. Um, so anyone from any religion or no religion at all is welcome here, and we are not going to be antagonistic on this podcast. Whatever your faith-based or non-faith-based background is, I think you are intelligent enough to see um, that abortion is wrong. It is the ending of a human life. And so we're going to use scientific facts and history to kind of debunk a lot of the myths and lies that are put forth by the abortion industry and the politicians and the media that line up beside them. And at the same time, we're not going to bash someone who's pro-choice necessarily. Um, I, I think, like I said, someone who is using pro-choice as a means of getting political power, somebody like um, Hillary Clinton or Elizabeth Warren or somebody like that. Um, yeah, I don't know if you can hear it in the background. This is the I'm recording this on the 4th of July and there are fireworks going off in my neighborhood. So if you hear that popping in the background, I apologize. But hey, Mirka. Um, 
I think people who, people like Planned Parenthood who are using abortion as a means of making money or politicians who are talking about it in a way um, to gain political power, I think a lot of people on the left use it as a means, uh, whether they care really about it or not really care about it, um, it, it's a means to an end for them. And, And we could say the same thing about people on the right saying that they're against it, right? Because how many times have have people been voted into office that were that called themselves conservatives or who said they were against abortion and then they did nothing when they got into office. So it's equally bad on both of those. But that's not really what we're here to talk about. So what uh, what I'm going to do in this podcast is kind of um, there's going to be probably a few episodes of just me talking and kind of laying down a foundation of some historical things and then I'd like to start incorporating interviews into this process and highlighting groups or people who are experts in their field um, and either either projects that are maybe local or national that are pro-life or um, and I also want to highlight ways that you can get involved and causes that you can support and that would be even a resource for you. So bear with me for this first couple episodes because they may be a little uh, scatterbrained as I kind of figured this thing out. But anyways, today we are going to be talking about some history, but before we get into that, I just kind of want to do an aside about terminology, because we have to agree on what words we're using and what they mean before we can have any kind of productive dialogue. Now, I will kind of use words like baby or unborn or fetus interchangeably, and all of these words have specific meanings. Now, when we talk about abortion... I am not talking about a miscarriage. I'm talking about an intentional ending of the life. Now, fetus, if I say fetus, don't get your feelings hurt because that word has nothing to do with personhood. That is a biological development stage. So I may say embryo, I may say zygote, I may say fetus. Those are all representative of specific stages of development. And I'll put links in the show notes. Um so that you can you can kind of go and see what each of those specifically means. But um, and I know people get upset because I also know that a lot of the pro-choice side uses those terms specifically to try and um, be clinical and be dehumanizing because it makes it easier to end that life if you pretend like it doesn't have value. And so just know going forward that if I say zygote or embryo or fetus. That doesn't mean that I don't think they have value. I wouldn't be doing this podcast, right, if I thought they didn't have value. I may also say baby. So if that bothers you, um, we're probably going to have a problem here. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of loose with my words in that sense. Like I may flip back and forth, but um, humans have value. Okay, now when I talk about history, uh, for the foreseeable future, I will be talking about American history and American politics and American legal standing of things because that's what I'm more familiar with. That's where I've lived my whole life. And so if you know more about abortion issues in other countries, by all means, get in touch with me and let's, let's have you on the show or, you know, we can, we can talk and you can share kind of your experience or your knowledge with me on that. I just, I don't know about other countries. So I am going to focus on American history. And if you're looking to 
kind of learn more about American history, I would highly recommend uh, Dr. Thomas Wood's book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. And that's a, that's a good kind of surface level, easy, fun read of, hey, here's all the things that they didn't tell you in school. So, or, or a better perspective of things that they kind of touched on, but maybe gave you a skewed per perspective in school. And then if you want the really dense one that I still haven't finished, um, Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty is an excellent read. Um, but I'm still going through that and I'll put links to both of those in the show notes and I will put links to the audio form or the, the, the audio files of Conceived in Liberty because it's in free form on the Mises Institute podcast. But like I said, it's hours and hours, so just brace yourself for that. All right, let's get into the history of it. So, um, and this is kind of appropriate because I don't know when I'm going to release this episode, but I'm recording it on July 4th. So hooray, independence. Um, you may hear fireworks going off in the background as I'm recording this in my neighborhood because I'm kind of outside the city limits. So prior to American independence, you have English common law and English common law states that abortion is um, not permissible after quickening. What's quickening? Well, quickening was the first fetal movements felt by the mother. So that usually takes place around 15 to 20 weeks of gestation. But that's not actually the first time that the baby moves. We know that now because we have ultrasound and we have all this technology. They didn't know that at the time. And it was believed that that was maybe when a soul was imparted on this child. And, you know, it is clearly at this point moving on its own. And it is somewhat independent of the mother in that sense. And so it has to be protected by the law. And it is wrong to abort after this point. Now, it's interesting to note that socially abortion was frowned upon to some extent because both the mother and the doctor performing the procedure were held accountable to the law. There was punishment for both. However, it was not viewed the same uh, by the law as murder of a born human. So just kind of an interesting thing to note. Now, again, we go by the quickening because there were no um, rapid pregnancy tests, right? We, you couldn't go pee on a stick back then and find out. Um, the, the first sure sign of life was the quickening. Now there was, um, the missed period that should have been a, a sign, but, um, that's not necessarily, you know, even today there are lots of women who are irregular and I'm sorry if talking about this bothers you, I'm a nurse, so I deal with this kind of stuff all the time. So I know that sometimes I talk about things that people go, Ugh, but hey, we're talking about babies. And so you, I'm sorry, you're going to have to deal with it. So many women, even today, are not necessarily what you would consider regular in as far as um, having a strict 28-day cycle. And, um, and so... It, it, that in itself is not enough to necessarily consider someone like, yeah, definitely pregnant. And so back then, we're talking 1700s, quickening was the first sure sign that there is life in here. So 1770s, the U.S., tired of increasingly burdensome legislation from Great Britain and no representation in Parliament and 
you know, police state and um, the Brits trying to tell them to, you know, take their guns and things like this. The, the, the U.S. gets tired of this and they throw off uh, British rule and become this loose confederation of states. There's no constitution yet. And what passes for federal law is called the Articles of Confederacy, drafted in 1777, but those aren't even ratified by all the states until 1781. What eventually becomes the U.S. Constitution isn't ratified until 1788. So we have over 10 years from the Declaration of Independence until the Constitution is adopted. And even at that point, much of what the Constitution does is actually protect states and citizens from it goes fireworks again it protects the citizens and the states from an overreaching federal government which is very different from what we see today and i'm going to try my best not to go off on libertarian tangents here so rather than starting each state starting with a blank state and having to fill in all the laws they basically adopted common law, English common law, continued practicing English common law, and then tweaked it as they, they saw necessary to fit each state. Um, and so they carried over this marker of the quickening as the time when there should start becoming legal consequence for abortion. Now, again, like we said, quickening is the first fetal movements. It is the for sure pregnancy indicator. And the problem with using a missed period is that there was this idea, at least in theory back then, that there could be something else blocking menstrual flow and that, you know, it could cause all these other problems. And so if you didn't treat it, it you, you'd have complications. And so a woman could go and seek a procedure to restore menstrual flow, you know, normal, whatever, her normal cycle um, prior to quickening. And this wasn't looked down upon, and there there was really no way to be sure of whether this woman was pregnant or not. And so the procedure essentially was the same for an abortion versus for this something blocking the menses. And also the other thing to consider is this is a time when we're talking about late 1700s, Doctors are not, you know, medicine was not the same as it is nowadays. Well, I mean, we've already kind of talked about that with the technology, right? And that that's an idea that I want you to kind of tuck away in the back of your head because technological and scientific advancements are going to play a huge role as we develop these ideas and as we have further and further episodes, um, we are going to see how much of a role that that diagnostics play in our knowledge about embryology and fetal growth and development. Um, but, but back then, doctors were not set up in hospitals waiting for all the patients to come to them. It was the opposite, right? Like most people would, would send a message for their doctor to come and see them. And doctors were kept on more or less like a retainer and they would serve their family, you know, they would have these families that they served. And, and maybe there was only one or two doctors in town, right? Depends on the size of the town. And um, 
again, as an aside, you're starting to see a move back to that because of the way that healthcare is so jacked up. It's called direct primary care. You should look that up. Um, it's actually a really cool thing and it, and it produces better results for both the doctors and the patients. So, um, maybe I'll leave a link in the show notes to, to some stuff on direct primary care, but you should check out anyways. So, you know, doctors were making house calls and their livelihood was based on serving families. It, um, and their reputation was very much a factor here. And so let's say a woman got pregnant outside of wedlock and the family calls for the doctor to take care of it. Now, at this point, even if this is, um, if he really believes that she's pregnant and he has qualms about doing this and he thinks like, I don't want to, you know, do this procedure because I don't believe her. I think she probably, um, had sex outside of marriage, which is this huge social taboo at the time. And this is really an abortion. He's got a choice here that he makes that really has a direct impact on his livelihood. Now, I'm not saying this is necessarily the right thing, but I'm just saying this is what is. And, um, um, and I'll leave a link in the show notes to a book that, that I read through, um, that talks about this. It's called abortion in America. And, um, just so you think I'm not just making this stuff up. Like I, I did research a lot of this stuff and basically, you know, there go the fireworks again. You know, this doctor at this point has a choice. He can say, uh, I refuse to, or he, he can perform the procedure with the belief that maybe knowing or suspecting maybe that he's actually performing an abortion rather than just, um, you know, removing a blockage, right? If you want to call it that. But then the other side is, does he refuse? Because what happens if he refuses, essentially he's making a public accusation against this woman or against this family that she's been fooling around, which is a big deal. And he could lose that family's business. And not only that, if this is a wealthy or influential family, he can lose the business of other families. I mean, think about, you know, when you look at Amazon or Yelp and you see reviews and, you know, maybe there's that one review that's in all caps, one star, this ruined my life, right? You kind of write them off. But if you start seeing multiple one and two star reviews, it's going to affect your decision. And so many doctors would just go ahead and perform the procedure. Um, even if they thought this is probably not right. Um, you know, and there was no, there was no, um, legal consequence for them if this is prior to quickening. And even after quickening there, we'll, we'll talk about this more in the next episode, but there started to become a demand um, in the, in the early 1800s. But I guess my point is that even at this point there, there's evidence of doctors who thought, "Mm, this is probably not right, but they violated their own conscience, um, for the sake of their job. And, um, I'm not saying that that's right, but I'm also saying that that's hard when, when you've got to worry about feeding your family. This is not, you know, Dr. Oz and, He's living in a mansion and he's got tons of money and he can just go down to the next person. You know, these are people who live in, in tight knit communities and their reputation, um, is very much tied to their livelihood. So 
that's kind of where I'm going to end the history segment today and we're going to pick up there next time but as you can see um so much of the law and so much of people's perception was based um on a lack of medical understanding and it, it that's not malicious that's just science had not caught up yet they um you know they didn't have the diagnostic techniques they didn't have ultrasounds or pregnancy tests or any of these other things that we have now and so everything was based on this quickening doctrine now we're going to transition and talk about a little science here so we're going to talk about rapid urine testing for pregnancy I know this is not what you had in mind. Um, if you come back for episode two, you're awesome because I've talked about menstrual flow and peeing on sticks here in episode one. So I'm really testing to see who's going to stick around. All right. So the common urine pregnancy tests that are kind of ubiquitous today that we think of, um, what they test for is the presence of HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin. And when when the embryo implants in the wall of the uterus so you've you've got um fertilization occurs and it becomes a zygote you know you have these two you have sperm and egg that are that each have half the information for a human right neither one of those is human they they meet the dna the half set of dna from each one of those mixes merges creates this unique genetically unique human here right? It's a zygote. It's one single cell, but it's got enough information for a whole human. Then it starts dividing and it goes through a couple of really rapid stages that um, we might get into at some other point, but it's not really worth discussing because they happen so fast. Then it becomes an embryo. And then the embryo implants on the wall uh, of the uterus. And then it becomes uh, shortly after that, we call it a fetus. Um, and again, I'll leave links in the show notes so you can go and look at developmentally what those definitions mean. But um, after implantation, these HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin levels, um, double about every day. And HCG is a hormone that helps with the development of the placenta to facilitate transport of nutrients um, from the mother's blood system to the growing fetus. I'm not sure if you can hear those screaming fireworks going off outside my window. Um, I know you heard that one. So anyways... I'm just going to wait. Okay. So like I said, they, they help transport nutrients to, um, or it facilitates the, the development of the placenta, which in turn facilitates nutrient transport to the growing fetus right and it's protection there's this really great video from ted ed that i'm going to link to in the show notes and it shows the different chemical reactions that take place across this strip as it goes down um, as as the urine kind of goes across the strip and all these different chemical reactions that are taking place and picking there's like various antibodies and dyes and things it's really cool 
Now, over the years, the tests have just gotten better and better and more consistent and also more sensitive so that if timed right, a woman could test and find out that she's pregnant even before she misses her period. Um, but you kind of have to be, you know, trying and, and doing all the things just right. The concentration of HCG in her urine is going to be a key factor. So, you know, false negatives are possible if the concentration level is low and, and that can be caused for by a number of things. And um, false positives are also possible, um, but they're far less common. Um, and, and usually there's some kind of problem going on that you've got this elevated level of HCG without being pregnant. Um, and then there's also now more sensitive pregnancy tests that test for other things that we that, that have been developed, but the the most common test is for HCG. And, and like I said, those are basically fairly ubiquitous now. I mean, everybody knows, you know, if you see a commercial and it's a woman holding a stick and she's shaking it and looking at it and a little, you know, line appears on it, like you know what that is, right? But those were not always available, right? Those, the first commercially available at-home test kits weren't available in Canada until 1971, and then they weren't available in America until 1977, which means that they weren't really available until after Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton were decided. And I don't necessarily think that um, if they had been mainstream, you know, if, if pea sticks had been mainstream, it would have changed the decision there. I just, I, I don't think so because they're available now and they don't change people's opinion, but stick with me through the next few episodes and on. And, and we're going to talk about other technologies that are developed that, that really make it to where like, okay, yeah, you, you know, maybe in the 17, 1800s, um, even early 1900s, you could make the case that we may or may not know. We, we can't, you know, science is not settled about when life begins and blah, blah, blah. But look, it's 2018. That kind of idea is unscientific. It's, it's laughable, truly. Um, and if that's your position, I really challenge you really, really learn about this stuff. If you're just repeating what someone else has told you, you're doing yourself a disservice. You need to learn about this stuff. And, and, and hopefully I can help you with that and provide some resources for that. Um, so, so like I said, we're going to talk about history. We're going to talk about science. We're going to talk about, um, legislation, good legislation, bad legislation uh, on both sides and all that as we progress on this show. So that's where we're going to wrap up on some of that stuff. So if you like what you heard, share this episode, share the show on social media, uh, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast player so you don't miss any episodes. Um, Be sure to check out the website, fightforlifepodcast.com. Um, for show notes and more resources and find ways that you can support the show since this is kind of a self-hosted thing and it does take time and money to do. Um, Yeah, thanks again and keep on fighting.